We are in Luke 9, chapter 43. We left off in the first part of 43 last week where it says that they were all amazed at the greatness of God. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. Jesus cast a demon out of a boy where his disciples could not. It wasn't that they couldn't, it was because they had failed to pray and fast, Mark chapter 9, 29 says, and they lacked faith, Matthew 17 of the same account tells us. Although the disciples had been given power and authority over all demons, Matthew tells us their power and their authority was only activated by faith. Their power and authority was only activated by faith. The obstacle of faith is often, uh, and as we will see today, pride, but, but fear. How many of you know what God has called you to do, but when you actually are supposed to go do it, you're afraid and therefore you don't, and we lose. Disciples experienced probably some fear there. And this demon the disciples encountered in that boy was powerful, probably more powerful than the ones they had encountered before. And it, would, it wouldn't come out like the others. They came back rejoicing after they were sent out because they had, the demons were fleeing at the name of Jesus. And now they ran into an obstacle. And Jesus explains in Mark 9 that this kind only comes out by fasting and prayer, by prayer and fasting. And we learn a lot from that there, that, that there are kinds of demons. That's news to me. There are kinds of demons. And you're like, whoa, there are kinds of demons? What's that? There's just one group of bad guys. No, there's, there's different kinds of demons, which is not uh, something I particularly like. And they're only defeated by spiritual means. They're only defeated by spiritual means. In this case, fasting and prayer. Now, fasting is the denial of self, the denial of our fleshly and natural desires, so that for a time we may focus and prioritize the things of the Spirit. may focus on the things of the Spirit. Man was created in the image of God's Spirit, and then he has his, his emotions, and then he has his body. And God-given drives and appetites and all those things. But those appetites and desires were never supposed to rule a man. It was the Spirit of a man that was supposed to rule the body. And therefore, fasting and prayers, the denial of those things, that we may focus on the Spirit and deny the flesh and therefore be in tune with the Lord and be empowered in those things. And demons are of a spiritual realm. And the Scriptures teach, like in Ephesians 6, that there are different kinds of fallen angels or demons, and some have more power than others, ranks, principalities, dominions, authorities, all these things. And you cannot defeat a spiritual enemy with earthly means and physical weapons. How many of you... Uh, Sin confess. Anybody ever watched Ghostbusters back in the ninety, 80s, whatever it was? Yeah. You just, you, you, you have to have the plasma gun thing that grabs them and gets them in. You just can't throw a rock at them. It goes right through them. Same kind of principle, but true. <laughs> you can't defeat a spiritual enemy with material means. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says in verse 3 and 4, For though we live in the world, how many of you are living in the world? Amen. There we are. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. How does the world wage war? With what? Guns, tanks, bullets, um, psyops, all this stuff. But the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, Paul says. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. The weapons that you are now equipped with, which are spiritual weapons, 
are, equi- are, are given, they have power to demolish strongholds, which is the word fortresses. And so there's spiritual enemies with spiritual fortresses. And, God, and Paul goes on to explain that that has a great deal amount to do with the way people think. The enemy puts thoughts in their heads and therefore their actions follow. And so as we come against the enemy with truth, with the word of God, with prayer, those, demoli- those things get torn down and they're powerful to break through that. Any of you come to someone and they just won't be convinced by just talking at them? But then again, you, you go in, in, in prayer and suddenly you see the heart begin to change for some reason. How many of us just get tired we don't even go to prayer? Oh my gosh. I don't remember how many times growing up our kids would be hurt or whatever it might be going on and we're just frustrated. We're going to the doctors and we're doing everything, you know, good parents should and then and just, just at your wit's end. And then all of a sudden, start to pray secondarily. Oh yeah, pastor, you got to pray for your kids. You start to pray and then that's when the change happens. That's when it actually, the, the, the stronghold is broken, so to speak. And I'm not charismatically weird on this. This is biblical. And so there are enemies that we have that are spiritual, that are to be fought with spiritual weapons. So we can't fight our enemy with the weapons of the world. No, God gives us powerful spiritual weapons. And as you ladies well know from being in Ephesians uh, chapters 10 through 12, uh, sorry, chapter 6, verse 10 through 12 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is what? Not against flesh and blood. Where is your struggle? Flesh and blood. <laughs> if we're honest, right? But where is truly your, your struggle in Christ? Where, where are, where's your enemy? It's spiritual in nature. So Paul recognized this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of, uh, of every evil, I'm sorry, of evil in, in the heavenly realms. And then Paul goes on to describe what our armor and weaponry in Christ is to defend and to attack against the enemy is like. And the offensive weapons are the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God in prayer. And so the enemy will seek to get us to confront him, to deal with him at his advantage. The enemy wants to deal with you at his advantage, on his turf, in his terms, in his way, which is to get you in the flesh to try to deal with what he's doing. Amen? And if you do that, you are going to be frustrated beyond belief because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And... The disciples were failed, basically, to cast out this demon because they were trying to fight a spiritual battle in the flesh. They were trying to fight a spiritual battle in the flesh. They hadn't been praying and fasting, which would have focused them on the might and power of the Lord, and as a result, they were powerless because of their faithlessness. And, and really, this is what the last half of chapter 9 is about. The failures of the disciples and the Lord's teaching them through it. The last half of chapter 9, we're, we're going to see men called by God, trying to do the work of God, but often vacillating between being filled with the Spirit one minute and the other minute. They are totally in the flesh, falling on their face. Anybody can relate? 
I mean, when Jesus brought Peter, James, and John with him to pray on the mountain before he's transfigured, what are they doing? They're sleeping. It says there in verse 32 that they were very sleepy. I'm telling you, you can cure a lot of insomnia, just start praying. (laughs) But they were asleep instead of prayer. And then you will see this happen again as these future leaders engage in spiritual activity. They're they, they should be praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus comes to them three times, and what, what are they doing? They're asleep. And it says in one of, the, one of the Gospels, because of sorrow. Because of sorrow. They let their emotions, they let physical things overtake what the Spirit had called them to do. How many of you are, are ruled by those things? You know you should, but I'm tired, but I'm weary, but I've worked all week, but this and that. Me too. How many of you right now just want to go eat lunch? Will you hurry up with this? Amen. Truth over there. Little kid raised his hand. Unless you're like one of these. (laughs) But the Lord, you know, is faithful. He is so faithful to teach them and to restore them. That's just constantly what I see in in chapter 9. The Lord is faithful to take these disciples, these people who have chosen to follow him, and to mature them up, to grow them up in the Lord. Later, Peter wrote several times to the church to be alert and to be sober. 1 Peter 4, 7, he says, Therefore, be alert and of sober mind that you may pray. How come he wrote that? Because he wasn't alert, because he wasn't sober, because he didn't pray. And we see that playing out the night Jesus was betrayed. He wasn't alert, he wasn't sober, he didn't pray. And what happened to him. He fell into temptation, yet Jesus came, sought him out, raised him up, restored him, and said, if you love me, go feed my sheep. And there he went. In the next chapter in 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter says, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion for someone, uh, uh, looking for someone to devour. I didn't write it down, but it comes to my mind. Jesus says, Peter, Peter, Satan has wanted to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. That after you have been restored, you would go and comfort your brother and something like that. I can't remember the exact words, but that's almost it. I think that's pretty cool. Peter's saying, yeah, the enemy's like a lion. How did he know the enemy was lying, like a lion? Because he got bit. <laughs> Anybody you've been bit? You failed. This is what I love about the Bible. And especially where we are in chapter 9. Luke uh, as he is getting the accounts from possibly Peter firsthand or John and others, uh, they don't leave out their failures. They don't gloss it over. They don't leave out the failures. And they show how, the gracious, how gracious the Lord is with them as he taught them how to follow. And you can see this transparency like in, in Luke uh, 9, verse 33, just a few verses before we are. It says, he didn't know what he was saying. In parentheses, he didn't know what he was saying. I'm, I can hear Peter relaying this. He's just like, and I was up with them, and I made three tabernacles, and I was like, yeah, and, and I really didn't know what I was saying. And he, this is what happened, and he's just right, and he didn't know what he was saying. Peter says, I, didn't, I had no clue what I was doing. I love that. You ever been there? <laughs> the father corrects Peter. He could have smoked them right there for false worship, but he didn't. He encouraged them. And that's the perspective I I see here in chapter 9 as we finish out the chapter, that following Jesus means that we're going to step out in faith and obedience only to find ourselves having great moments of being 
filled and led by the Spirit, followed by times of letting the old nature lead. And from that, we find powerlessness, frustration, and failure in our walk with the Lord. But God is faithful and will be faithful to correct us and strengthen us as we go. And so be encouraged. If you've been sleeping this morning when you should have been praying, be encouraged. Be encouraged if you don't have a proper understanding of who Jesus is. Neither did Peter. Be encouraged when you run to a brick wall of demonic opposition and you're doing it all wrong. It's just not working. Be encouraged. The Lord will help you and he will work with you. And this is why Jesus said to his disciples, go and baptize, uh, go and make disciples, baptizing them uh, in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. That tells me that making a disciple means they, that we don't know how to obey fully yet. Amen? Thus the New Testament. All the letters written to the churches so that we now are trained in how it is to discern good and evil and to follow the Lord. How we need more of the, the word in our lives. And the Lord is faithful and he's going to lead us and teach us as we follow him. So verse 30, uh, 30, uh, 43b. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what uh, what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. And this is the second time in a very short time that Jesus is letting his disciples know that he's about to be delivered to the religious leaders and killed. This is really important information. If your leader walks up to you and goes, I'm about to be- die. I mean, you've got to listen to me. I'm about to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. If you want to follow me, same thing's going to happen to you. I mean, I would be like all ears, right? But it says, very interesting, that it was hidden from them. He starts telling them, you know, listen to what I'm about to tell you. Have you ever had that conversation with someone? This is very important, and you start relaying important information. And they're shaking, you know, their heads, yes, but you know nobody's home. Has anybody had that before? I have that every Sunday. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Come on now. That's why this pulpit stays here. It's thick. Yeah. Believe me, the, the reverse is very true. Christine's going, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Jesus knew it, but he told them anyways. Amen. He told them anyways, knowing that it, later it would click. We too often find that God tells us stuff that we don't really truly understand fully. But God tells us it anyway. How many of you read a verse in the Bible and you, you're reading it and going, I should probably understand what this is, but I don't have a clue. Let's move on. And then later on, at an important point, it clicks, and you're like, that's deep. I've had that. You know, uh, I've read through uh, strength. You know, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And I go, I get an intellectual understanding that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Okay. And then you move on, and then you find yourself being incredibly weak. And then you go, I don't see you being very strong in this. It sounds like just weakness is weakness. And then as that perseveres, you find out that you no longer are trusting in your flesh as much or it's exposed for what it truly is. And then the Lord, you find out that like Abraham, he didn't trust in his flesh, but he trusted in the promise. And then the power comes because it's not you, it's Christ in you. But that place of 
it takes a while to connect. And you'll read a verse or you'll have some kind of truth and it'll just go right by you. And the Lord is faithful to bring it home. I love that. They're shaking their heads, yes. I've had that happen. But have you ever been on the other side of the conversation where you're directly, but you're directing someone really truly uh, concerning something that is very important and they're saying that they are shaking their heads, yes, and you know that they're not getting it, but you've got to tell them anyway. How many of you have been employees telling, or employers telling employees or coworkers something? It has to be done this way. This is so important. Make sure that red button doesn't flash because we're going to have a meltdown or whatever it might be. They're like, uh-huh. And they're like looking on their phone or whatever it might be. And you know inside they're scrambling to understand what's being said. And you say, do you understand? And they look back at you and they say, yes, I understand. And you know that that did not compute. Anybody had that conversation? And when we are clueless like that, what keeps us from asking for more details? What, what keeps us from asking more details? It's the same thing the disciples experienced. They were afraid to ask. But why were they afraid to ask? Was Jesus this big meanie? I I believe what the Lord is zeroing in on here is that they struggle with pride. Anyone struggle with pride? Some of you are saying no. (laughs) They were the twelve. They were the 12. They were the called out ones, the apostles, right? And most likely they felt the pressure that they were supposed to now get the spiritual stuff. Anybody feel like you've got to get the spiritual stuff? You have the title, but you don't have the information? Anybody had that? Not me. Maybe you can relate if you've been walking with the Lord a bit and you've run into a situation where some truth is being discussed about the Lord and... And outside you're shaking your head, yes, but inside you, you're going, you know, I should know this, but I don't. I don't have a clue. What keeps you from going, you know what, I really don't understand that. Can you tell me a little bit more? What keeps us from that? It's because we have a fear of men, or we want people to think we are what we aren't. That's called pride. And Jesus is using these guys, but as he's using them, guess what's coming out in their personalities in, in what they're doing? Pride. See, we're not going to be fixed. It's as we go, the Lord shows us who we are and corrects us as we're moving. Otherwise, we're, just, we're never going to grow. And so how do you learn from uh, life? You move forward. And the Lord directs you as you go. I love that the Lord is gentle and he takes us and he'll teach us if we're willing, if we have that humble heart, if we're willing to acknowledge our pride. I think it's so scary for us, but it's refreshing for others when someone says, I should know, but I really don't. What do I do? Or what else does that, or what does that really mean? I don't know. It's, it's interesting in Bible study when I'm teaching on, on Tuesday morning with the guys, quite often we'll run into a section uh, and um, we'll just be like, I don't know. We'll have to figure, anybody got a, got a clue on that or whatever it is? We'll have to come back to that. And there's, there's things we just don't know in life, and it's okay. You know, I think as we head into the fall with our marriage series, as I was putting this together, 
you know, pride in my own heart or in your heart is, is going to be the major obstacle for us growing in our love for the Lord and love for one another. It really is. How many of you married couples are going to sit together and go, oh, yeah, we got that all figured out. <laughs> oh, well, this is what you do. Or you talk about something, oh, really? You're supposed to do that? Or You know, I mean, it's, it's humiliating sometimes. There's, there's a, a level of, of humility that has to come, a, a recognition of, of a lack of knowledge, of a lack of understanding. And so some of us, we don't know what God has called us to. We don't know what marriage is about. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing. Some of us, we don't know how to get past something in our marriage, you know? And I'm praying that we wouldn't let pride and the fear or even bitterness that accompanies pride keep us from all that the Lord would do in and through us through that. Because that's where we really truly grow. And that's what we need. I don't know. Lord, help me. Blessed are the what in spirit, for there's the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit. Not proud in spirit, poor in spirit. That's the opposite of the kingdom. And so look in verse 46 as the disciples struggle with pride. Verse 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Has anybody ever had that situation going on in your life? Someone else got promoted, and then everybody else around you is starting to, and you're talking about, well, I should have, I should have been the greatest. I, 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 me, I. Anybody else had that? Now, Jesus just said, listen carefully. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men, and a few verses before that, I am going to die. And somehow the disciples walked away with, Jesus is getting ready to make himself king. I think I should be chief of staff. You can be gopher. And, I mean, that's, that's basically the translation. I'm going to be VP, and what are you going to do? Just, I'm VP, obviously. You know, pride is the reason we desire to put ourselves above, above, above others. Pride is the reason we desire to put ourselves, to elevate ourselves above, above others. Verse 47, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is, uh, for it is the one who is least among you, all who is the greatest. <clears throat> Church, uh, did you hear what Jesus just said? To us, the Spirit of the Lord just said to us, for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. For it is the one who is least among you all that is the greatest. You. It's not theoretical Bible stuff. It's in this room. And so we would take Pastor Matt and all these people and we go, well, obviously he's the greatest. I mean, wouldn't you agree? And Jesus would take a little child and he'd bring him up here and goes, you see that? They're the greatest. Now, why are they the greatest? They're, in that culture, they weren't looked at as anything of great value. They were really a burden. Any of you had kids say amen? <laughs> Obviously, they're a great joy. But in a hard society, it's hard to raise kids. And he takes the least, one that would even be below a slave, so to speak. And says, they're the greatest. Why? 
because of their connection and their relationship to Jesus. It's not your position that makes you great in the kingdom. It's your relationship to Christ. And that's very important to know. Jesus had to paint that picture. If you welcome this little child, you welcome me. If you welcome uh, me, you welcome the Father. Jesus says the least is the greatest, and the point is that prominence in the kingdom is not measured by human standards of achievement. We have prominence because of our relationship to Jesus. We are in Christ, who is the King. We are sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. It's nothing to fight about. And greatness in the kingdom is through humility, not pride. Greatness in the kingdom is through humility, not pride. And Jesus became a servant. He's our example. Anytime Paul or, or Peter or anybody says, you know, be humble, he connects it back to Christ. He always says, this is why. Because how he lived is, is hopefully what the Holy, is, is what we're desiring the Holy Spirit to do within us. So if Jesus was a servant and he gave it up all, guess what we're doing? I want, Lord, you to be, make me a servant like you and to lay down my life that others might live. And, and greatness in the kingdom is truly through humility, not pride. Jesus became that servant. He became poor that we might become rich. And that is greatness in God, God's eyes, not clawing our way to the top. How many of you um, at, your, at your place of employment are asked to do things that are outside of your realm of, of what you're supposed to be called to do, and you complain because it's above your pay grade or below your pay grade or whatever it might be. I mean, as Christians, we should be jumping at the, at the plot and say, I'll do that. You need a toilet clean? I'm the CEO. You got it. Obviously, a company's not going to run great in, 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 you know, if, if, if everything's out of place, but we're not a part of the company. We're part of the kingdom. We represent Christ, and so we, we show Christ in everything we do. Nothing is below us, nothing is above us. Whatever the Lord has called us to do, we'll, we do with humility because we're servants, right? We represent him who on the night he was betrayed got down on his hands and knees and washed his disciples' feet. King of kings and Lord of lords, at his word, judgment will be poured out upon the earth a sword comes out of his mouth and he bows down and he washes the disciples' feet and he says, you go do likewise. He had to do it over and over so they would get it. Thank you, Lord. When Jesus tells his disciples about his death a third time in the book of Matthew chapter 20, John and James's mom comes and asks for Jesus to make her two sons sit at the right hand and the left when he becomes king. She's got it in. With the, with the, he's going to be king. They were looking at the scriptures all wrong. They had it backwards. Jesus came the first time as a suffering servant. Next time he's coming back as on, a, on a war horse and he's going to set things straight. This time he came to die, but she said, hey, you know, can... can my two boys sit, you know, at your right and your left. That's what I want because you're about to go into power and here they are. They need to be up there with you in power. And Jesus has this discussion. says, you don't know about the cup I'm about to drink. And they said, I'll drink it. He's like, it's a cup of death and suffering, basically. They didn't understand. It was hidden from them. They kept seeing what they wanted to see as they were looking at the scriptures. 
And then in verse 25 of Matthew 20, Jesus says to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and they and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become greatest among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. And just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so greatness in God's eternal kingdom is not gained through pride, which seeks to self-promote. It is marked by humility and servanthood. How are you serving the Lord Jesus? What are your aspirations? What are you going for in life? What is it about? What are you building your kingdom upon? And this is a discussion we had with the men on, on, Wednesday, on Tuesday night last. You know, if you have this paradigm that you must have, and I use this example as a place marker, that you must have retirement. Where does it say in Scripture you must have retirement? I'm not against retirement, okay? But if we're building our whole lives towards a goal, and then Christ comes on the side and he says, hey, I want you to give it all away and do this and move here and do that. You're going, well, that would be great, but I've got to have security in retirement. Do you see what I'm saying? It's a place marker. It's not, nothing against retirement. So don't, you know, that's why I got the pulpit. But seriously, I understand how all that, you know, the pressures and what you should and, and being a good steward and all that stuff. How about just reading the Bible, obeying Jesus and doing what it says? And seek first the kingdom, and, and he'll take care of you. Is he good to his promise? And so that when you come to the place where the Lord is telling you to step out in faith and make a decision, you're not the one calling the shots that actually he is. And it's open-handed. Lord, you, you know everything I have is yours. And, and this is where I've been going, but if you want to change directions, then it, it's yours. Amen? That's a hard life. Does that sound like the cross? Does it sound like narrow? So I just think that we have these ideas that are imprinted in our minds that aren't biblical necessarily. They might be good and wise, but we're going to see what the Lord does in just a second with our good, wise thoughts. But Jesus, who is king of kings, became that servant. He gave up his life as a ransom for many. So the question is, Lord, how do I follow you in that? How can I become a servant? How can I give my life as a ransom for many? Humility happens through sanctification. Sanctification, which is a term that just means becoming more like Christ. I like what John MacArthur says about sanctification and pride. He says, sanctification is the progressive triumph of humility over pride and the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is the progressive triumph of humility over pride in the power of the Holy Spirit. How many of you, when you got saved, you were instantly humble? You might have been humbled, but I mean, many of us, the Lord is working those things out of our lives as Christ is formed within us, and the old man is put off. But like the disciples, we have pride in us and the Lord desires to work it out. And we find out that we are sinful and, and full of pride when the Lord shows us that as we follow him, as we are married, as we are going engaging in ministry, as we are parenting, as these things happen, as we're interacting with one another, we find out crud. And that comes the point to where we say, either I'm going to humble myself, God help and change, or we're going to hunker down and be who we are because they need to do this and that. Anyone else? 
Lord, I'm just speaking to me. Hallelujah. You see it? Is it painting the picture? Are you guys sitting there thinking? Right now, mental scenarios should be going off in your mind. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you about issues in your life he'd like to change right now. That's how God works. Teaching the word, he pops it in your mind about what that is, and you instantly go, no, don't do that. Say, okay, Lord, you want to come into this room? Come on in. What is it that you want to change? How have I been prideful in that area? And I know I've been wronged or whatever it might be, but God, don't make me like that. Make me like you. Humble me, break me, help me. Come in, make me like you. That's a work of the Spirit. That's not a work of man. That's a work God wants to do in us. So striving for greatness according to the world is contrary to following Christ. Disciples, they struggle with pride and position. This affected their relationships with one another. You see that? They weren't getting along. They were arguing with each other. And Jesus had to come in and say, no, come on. (laughs) All back together. And Jesus said that the least is the greatest. And now pride pops up again. There's just these little snippets of what was going on in their daily life, of how the Lord was discipling them. In verse 49 and 50, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against us is for you. John wanted to stop people who were not a part of their group and Jesus forbids it because pride promotes exclusivity while humility promotes unity. Pride promotes exclusivity while humility promotes unity. Now, that's a little hard to understand. It's important to know that if this guy was off doctrinally, Jesus would say, yes, we're going to stop this guy, or whatever it might be. He's not going to sit there and promote, yeah, go ahead so we can all get along. No, that's not getting along. It's called heresy. And I think we get that mixed up somehow in, in our church. The idea of unity is somehow that we are all... Um, just saying, okay, we can do whatever we want. That's not unity. That's called, like, issues. Does that work with your body? Hand, do whatever you like today. (laughs) Brain, tell it anything to do what it wants to do. You know, foot, have fun. No, there's there's harmony, but there's also um, diversity within your body. And that's what the Lord is saying here. And that's also true with the spiritual gifts and other things that I'm not going to get into right now. But John didn't like what he was doing, this guy. And what the 12 were, uh, what the 12 were doing was, was the ideal, and, and John wanted to stop it. And so Jesus says, no, there are only two camps. There's only two camps. There's sheep and goats. There's lost and there's saved. There's not mine, there's mine. Whoever is, uh, those who are, are for you, uh, are for you, and those who are against you are against you. And Jesus said in Matthew twelve twelve thirty later on, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So there are sheep and there are goats, John, and we are this on the same team with that guy. Don't let pride get in the way. Verse fifty one, and, and as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus was resolute, uh, resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Verse 51 marks a shift in Luke's gospel. He's leaving the area of Galilee and he's going to go down to where Jerusalem is in the southern area of Judea. And he was resolutely 
focused on going to Jerusalem. Remember, he was on the Mount Transfiguration. Uh, Moses and uh, Elijah and him were talking about the things that would soon happen. And so he's following the Father's plan. The Father is saying, it is time to go to Jerusalem. And he is resolute about what God says. So much so, verse 52 happens. And he sent messengers ahead, and he went into a Sumerian village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. The area of Samaria was north of Jerusalem, and the Jews would avoid this area like the plague. Because the Samaritans were half-breed Jews, and they set up their own worship system in the north. And I'm not joking around about half-breed Jews. What happened is when the northern northern, uh, kingdom of Assyria attacked in 700-something, Gary would know that number, 742, 7-something, seven other. 722. 722, there we go. I knew it was a 2 and a 7. <laughs> Rolling the dice there. Thank you, Gary. <laughs> 722 uh, uh, B.C., the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom. And when they did that, they assimilated the people with them. They started intermarrying, and as a result, you had these people who were half pagan background, half Jewish background, and that mixed, and they decided, hey, we don't want to go down worship in Jerusalem. We want to go worship at our little own little station in the north, which was kind of a, an idolatrous form of Judaism. And so <clears throat> because of this rift, because of this hatred between the two groups, that's why, it, you know, like in John chapter 4, when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well, They discussed about places of worship. The Jews worship in Jerusalem and the Samaritans rejected this. And Jesus said in John 4.22 to the Samaritan woman, You Samaritans worship what you did not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. You guys don't know what you're doing. We've got it right. That's what Jesus said. However, and then he goes on that you must worship in spirit and truth. That it's not going to be a place soon. It's actually not going to be a physical thing. It's going to be a spiritual thing. So because the Samaritans were intermarrying and because all this stuff was going on, that was why the story of the Good Samaritan was really good. Who is the one who actually stopped and helped someone else? It was the Samaritan, not the Jew. And then that's why the Jews wanted to kill him after that story. Who's my neighbor? The Samaritan's your neighbor. Go help him and love him. Ah, I don't want to because I'm prideful. It's pretty interesting. And so Jesus is resolute, so resolute that he's willing to go through that area and not go around it like they would. Verse 54 says, uh, when, the disciples, uh, when the disciples, James, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? <clears throat> At this point, being a political leader, Jesus says, let's take a vote. <laughs> No, these guys are called by Christ. They are of the 12. They're apostles. They're, sent, they're future leaders of the church. And what is their first response to opposition? Fire. Lord, can you upgrade me? Can I have that superpower? Let's do it. I want to watch him smoke. Is that the heart of God? He desires mercy. Aren't you thankful when you were a Samaritan to God that he didn't just call down fire and burn you up where you stand because he could as you were in your rebellion? But he desired mercy. So much so that he sent an emissary to pay for you, for me, 
all of our debts. He sent his son Christ, who would die at our hands, so to speak, would be rejected by humanity. The peace offering. That's love. That's the desire for mercy. But see, he who rejects the son, the wrath of God remains upon them. That's why the gospel is so sweet. It's so good that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus died in the place of the wickedest of sinners. Paul would say, of whom I am chief. Hmm. James and John, they were called the sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. I wonder why. Zealous. I love that. Anybody have zealous people? I forgot the quote. I always butcher it. I think Arthur knows it better. But, um, you know, the A.W. Tozer, I'd rather restrain a zealot than resurrect the dead. Something like that. I'd rather restrain a, a zealot than resurrect the dead. I'd rather try to redirect someone who's passionate about something than someone who's just like, I don't know. Oh. So here's these two guys, totally passionate. They obviously thought that this was what the Lord might like. They're questioning, Lord, should we call down fire upon the Samaritans? Do you want us to do that? Please let us do that. Aren't you glad that God didn't do that? You know, you can be zealous and you can be zealously wrong. You know that? You can be zealous and zealously wrong. We have people who strap bombs upon themselves and go blow themselves up. They're zealous for a God and they're zealously wrong. That's an extreme example, but it happens even subtly here within my own heart. Verse 55, we're almost there. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. He corrected them. And then he and his disciples went to another village. Notice it didn't say much. He said he he corrected them. Thank you, Lord. And as they were walking along the road, a man said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom of God. Lord, yeah, but I, first I've got to get my retirement in order. That's what I'm talking about. Right? That's what the place marker was. Put it in there, wherever you want. What's your greatest aspiration? What are you about? What is your day filled with? Who, what is your life? Who it is? And if Jesus walks in and says, and you say, I want to follow you, but... That's scary. It doesn't say what happened to these people, but I, I, I know the tendency is that for us is to love the temporal more than the spiritual. It is. It's, it's, in our, it's, in our, it's in our fallen nature. And notice Jesus called that one man's father dead. He said, let the dead bury the dead. But you, supposedly he was alive, spiritually, you, you follow me. These are hard sayings. Many want to follow Christ, but they won't. Jesus said, if you desire to come after me, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me daily. Because Jesus will have you deny self and put to death yourself and then follow. That's why people don't want to follow. And just look at the things that 
that kept these people possibly from following Jesus down that narrow path, the desire for comfort, a pl- you know, a place to lay your head. How many of you are like, you know, my house is more important than the kingdom? Seriously. You work hard, you've done it all, but I mean, is it seriously more important than, than the Lord? Just asking, not, not that you can't say this is the Lord's and use it for him, that's not what I'm saying. But truly, we, we put our focus on and energy into things. That the Lord might say, hey, come on now. But wanting to bury their father to fo- them follow Jesus, is there anything wrong with that? We would all look at that as a common, wise person and say, well, that's compassionate. Why don't you go do that and then you can follow Jesus? That sounds like good human wisdom, but what, do, what did Jesus say? Let the dead bury the dead. No, you follow me. I've got to be more important than your love for your own father or possibly for the inheritance that you would get when he dies is the subtle thing there. Saying goodbye to family first. Oh, can I just go home and say goodbye to my family? Because I want to follow you, but I just want to say goodbye. Anything wrong with that? It seems like, no, naturally, but you know what? With them, it was more important than following Christ. It was a priority. You see, what's the priority? Putting the love of family above the love of God is sin. Not loving your family is sin. (laughs) Amen? But he's got to be first. Sometimes we can love our family and cart them all over the country and do everything with them and deny them Christ. And we try to sometimes, I mean, I've, I've gone down this road before where I realize this is all about entertainment or it's all about me trying to... Uh, fulfill what I want through my kids or it's, you know, this or that instead of what is your kingdom? What do you want? Lord, what do you want for my kid? Do you want them to go to college? Then we're going to go to college. If they don't, then guess what? I'm going to direct them and encourage them not to. Just because the world says you have to have a great education in order to have a good life. It's like, what is the good life? In a moment, everything can be taken away, folks. We are billions or trillions of dollars in debt. I mean, we can't even comprehend the amount of debt we have as a nation if it were called upon us, so to speak. You can see what's happening in the streets. Our, I mean, the moral fabric and the foundation of our, of our country is falling apart. No one can talk anymore. So where's your kingdom? Where's your alliance? Where's your flag? What are you living for? You know? I think in Germany, I forgot what it was, but within a short amount of time, you know, whatever the value of the currency was around World War II, I forgot what it was, it just went from something to absolutely nothing. It was gone, and everybody had nothing. There was no value to anything. I mean, what is a dollar? It's a piece of paper. It represents something, does it not? And if I had one dollar in the whole universe, how much would that be worth? A lot. But if I print billions and billions and trillions of them, how much value does that thing have? With every one you print, it's less. So I'm saying, what are we truly living for? We're living for things of the earth. Yes, we've got to live here, but how we live should be in light of eternity. Does that make sense? 
that the things that will not burn up, the things that will last forever and ever and ever and ever are the things that we're to invest in. Our treasures are to be invested in there. Well, what does that look like? Well, that's the great thing we get to discover together. Amen? Lord, what do you want to do in this situation? And what does your word say, not just Pastor Matt? What does the word say about that? What does Jesus say about the circumstance? And may God lead us and guide us. And some of us have been around for a while. We're just coming to the revelation of this, like, I wish I would have done it differently. You know what? It is what it is. Let's start today with what God would do. Amen? Let's start today. Be led by the Spirit. Be a man or woman of the Word. Put God first in your life. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Go to every single Bible study you can get your hands on. Preach the gospel at work to your kids. Confess when you're wrong. Say, I was wrong, or I don't know, and, and how can I help you? Lay down our lives. Let's, let's let Christ do his thing through the church. Amen? It's not one person. It's not a personality. You are the light of the world. Amen? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So comfort, money, and relationships, all things that people kept from following Jesus. Discipleship is a narrow path. It leads to the cross, which leads to life. Will you go down that path with me? Will, you, will I go that with you? That we go together. And that Christ may be glorified, that he may be lifted up, not in our greatness, but in our humility. Amen? Lord God, come before you as your church, blood-bought. I ask that you would please have mercy upon us this morning. And that you would fill us, Lord, not just with, with knowledge, Lord, but to will and to do. We know that you work within us to will and to do. And so those areas of our relationships and those areas of our lives that you just want to be in the middle of and redirect and we're scared. Lord, help us to just to say we're scared or we don't want to, whatever it is. And Lord, change us to be obedient followers to your glory, Father. And if there's someone in here who's never given their heart to Jesus Christ, you, can, can, you sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning. You say, I need to surrender my life to him. I know I'm a sinner. I've failed my whole life, whatever it is. And the Holy Spirit is just saying, I want you. I, I sent my son to die for you. If that's you and you want to give your heart to the Lord for the first time in faith, and you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again in your place, and you're willing to repent, to turn from your sin, and to start following Jesus. And raise your hand, and we'll pray for you right now. I don't care if you've been here for 20 years, 30 years going to church. Lord bless you. The Lord hears you. And you're going to be all in. You're going to give it all up. And he'll show you. Anyone else? Father, we just lift up this brother and we ask that you would fill him with your spirit. That you would know that he would know that you've cleansed him from all of his sin because of your great mercy. And I ask that as he now follows Jesus Christ, that you would teach him how to deny himself, pick up his cross today. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.